ago. I, I remember in class, some semi-crazy looking guy <laughs> at summer camp where they send out kids who aren't good at sports. Yeah. That, that was me. I went to computer camp too. Yeah, yeah. That's why my parents shipped me we up. Used, no, I actually uh, wanted to go. We used, uh, remember Rainbow? No. Rainbow. The Deck Rainbow. Yes. Yes. I had yeah. one of my computer science. Was uh, it a machine? Or yeah, it was program. a yeah. PC. CPM PC. I heard a lot of, a lot yes. of um, Reverb maybe? Reverb. I don't, I don't know. If you heard Reverb, you hear that. Uh, no, I'm not I like that. that. No, leave it on. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> From an underground bunker. <laughs> you were like a whole radio show. <laughs> Where's the wacky guy with the soundboard with the sound effects? Come on now. All right. Well, anyway, <laughs> just, just Ken. He's like the guy from uh, Police Academy. <laughs> oh my God! I, I am the guy from. That, that may be me. Michael Winslow. Michael Winslow. That's yes. that's me. How'd you know? He's my hero. <laughs> Actually, he was my hero for a couple of years. <laughs> Michael Winslow was your hero for a couple of years. Cherry Developer News, episode number seventy-seven. <laughs> we have to open it somehow. No, because I know I always wanted to be Michael Winslow too, because he had that. He had that little amp with the little, uh, you know, uh, patrolman mic. He's oh, like, he could do all that stuff. Woo! You know, He's all that coolest stuff. guy. It was great. Now I just blew people's ears out. Cherry Developer News, episode number seventy-seven. Four. What the heck is the date? Monday, January twenty-seventh, twenty fourteen. I'm Ken Ripple. I'm Joel Confino. I'm Eric Snyder. I'm having a hard time with the word twenty fourteen. It doesn't feel right yet. Too bad. All right. Well, anyway, uh, so we have all the news that's fit to print or print to fit or something like that. Uh, and we'll start out. Uh, let's see. First of all, before we get going, a little housekeeping. We have our show notes are available at chariotsolutions.com slash devnews. We are number 77. Eric, I figured I'd give you uh, the first crack at the first article here. Python. Before we get started, we had an article a couple days ago or a couple, like two weeks ago about Python 2 versus Python 3. Yep. And this kind of leads a little bit into that kind of discussion, right? Yeah. Well, uh, so Python. Well, Python three came out. Uh, I think two thousand nine. Now it's been a while. Um, it's uh, it's Python three is not in and of itself controversial at all, right? It's it's uh, if you look at it, it's just a logical evolution of, of Python. They uh, went in and cleaned up a bunch of the libraries. Uh, they the big thing they did was um, uh, Python two um, dealing with uh, Unicode was. Uh, while you could do it, it was uh, often painful because you could you could mix uh, Unicode and 8-bit strings in Python 2, and you would only get errors if the 8-bit string happened to not contain 7-bit ASCII values. So, Yay. you know, it was uh, painful, and uh, you know um, they wanted to clean that up in Python 3. So that was the probably the the big thing in there. But there's a lot of um, backward incompatible things, or maybe not a lot, but there's a decent amount of there are some some <laughs> backward incompatible aspects to Python three. So, consequently, what happened was uh, what you could probably predict what would happen. So, you know, it it is gaining traction, but here we are five years later, and most projects, uh, most uh, Linux distros, the default is still Python seven. Um, there's been a certain amount of backporting to Python seven, uh, Python two x along the last five years, but um, there's been a lot of articles and gnashing of teeth, you know, why can't we get over Python 3? Somewhere out there's a Python 3 wall of shame of all the projects that haven't <laughs> converted yet. Um, and there's uh, there's some libraries out there to make you, where you can make your projects compatible with either. Um, it's just been painful and... Messy. Um, messy, and uh, I, I don't know if Guido were to do it again, if he would do it the same thing. Um, I mean, personally, I think... Uh, something something like Python should evolve a little more um, gradually, you know, and and having that split um, didn't quite work how the, how they expected. That being said, they're continuing to come out with new releases of Python 3x, so um, it's not quite out yet, but 
Python 3.4 has a third beta app, which means it's pretty close. Um, so pretty cool things coming out. Um, no, go ahead. Okay. I figured out <laughs> There's a problem. It's just like pointing and, and I, I'm no, like audio sign en- language. It's I don't, audio engineering. I don't read lips or anything. You should. Um, so I only picked out a couple <laughs> things that I thought were pretty cool in uh, Python 3.4 that are going to be out soon. Uh, a new statistics module. So um, Python's pretty known for its uh, batteries included type sort of um, philosophy. So the Python standard library is uh, – which it goes shipped to hand in hand with every Python release. It's very complete, you know. It, as as the name as batteries included implies, it's got everything. So now it also has um, some statistical functions, which you used to have to use uh, Python NumPy for. You still want to use NumPy for a lot of things, but for some of the basic things like standard deviations and uh, invariances and stuff like that, and univariate uh, type functions, they're all coming now in the statistics module, which is very cool. Cool. Um, uh, probably not likely to be backported to two seven. So that's. Uh, Continue the controversy. Um, <laughs> also, there's uh, probably even more significantly, there's a, there's a new async I.O. module, which um, brings the whole event loop-driven programming model to Python. Hmm. So uh, instead of using a Python um, library like Python's Twisted, which, you know, it, it, that's what it is, but uh, there's a lot to it, and it gets fairly complex, and... Um, you, you can use this async I.O. module, um, or you don't need stackless Python. You could use this instead. So it's so, sort of like the Node.js kind of approach to development. So, yeah, we have promises and futures and callbacks. And, um, yeah, that sounds pretty giant, actually. Yeah, it's pretty huge. Uh, people are pretty excited about it. I am, too. Um, so it's a big deal. I'm going to go a little hardware on everybody for a second. Um, <laughs> Backblaze. You would think that if anyone has a good knowledge of what hard disks are, it would be a couple companies, right? Google. Amazon, Backblaze, a couple other ones. People that do lots and lots and lots of data backup for their customers, right? The thing about Backblaze that I really, and I am a customer, so. Hit it, yeah. <laughs> that I really like about them is that since they're commodity I.O. driven, they have all the real stats on commodity drives. So I'm not sure about Google and Amazon. Right. I know they're, I, I know, I'm pretty sure they're into, uh, Google at least is into commodity hardware, but I, I don't know, I think Backblaze literally buys the same stuff I buy. And you know what's cool? They go all deep in this in this particular article about exactly that. Very cool. And they talk about like what's the mean time between failure or the average failure rate for the drives they buy for every of the major drives they buy, you know, one year, three years. They show the curves, they show the plots. Um, that and, is so awesome. Oh, this is incredible. Like you look, just scroll down a little bit. This is on blog.backblaze.com, which hats off to these guys for being so open. And he says, I'll quote here from the drive population. At the end of 2013, we had, get this, <laughs> 27,134 consumer-grade drives spinning in Backblaze storage pods, which I assume have aliens in them, and they come out, and they t- oh, that's different. They, they actually open-source this whole thing. You can go out there, and you could find... Uh, they'll like tell the you schematics what, and everything? The schematics, but they'll tell you... I think they might even sell you a kit, uh, no if kidding. I remember correctly. Um, how, like how to build these uh, storage these pods? pods, yeah. Yeah, there's a link right in there. I'm sure that's what it is. So so to get this, now they've got 39.5 terabytes on Seagate drives, with the average age in years for Seagate drives being about 1.4. They have 12,956 Hitachi drives with 36 terabytes, about two years old. To me, that tells me the Hitachis might live a little longer overall. Western Digital, a lot less of them, uh, 2.5 years average age. Toshiba, you know, there's only 58 of those, and Samsung, 18. And I think one of the reasons they mentioned the article is because it's too expensive. You know, they say, you know what, this is above our cost range that we are comfortable with. Right, because the service is 
it's fairly inexpensive. Yeah, yeah. So they talk about that. They talk about dry failure rates, and it's kind of amazing. You get to the first thing on an annual basis. If you look at the drives, it tells a very big story about Hitachi drives. That first graph is annual failure rate, and they go up to like 0% to 16% failures. So if you've got a two or three or four terabyte Hitachi drive, for them on average for all those 20-some thousand drives, I don't know if that's the number they had for that, but uh, for whatever number they have, there was maybe 1% to 2% failure. That's really good. Mm -hmm. Compared to Seagate drives, which I'm kind of shocked, there are 1.5 terabyte drives that they had 14% failure in a year. So, so uh, I don't know if it says it in here. I, I didn't read every word of this article, but Seagate at one point acquired MaxTor within uh -huh. that time frame. So I don't know if that counts. MaxTor, who had sort of a notoriously bad failure High failure rate, rate yeah. 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 Um, but I'm looking here. Then they go into real detail. They actually talk about each drive, uh, and they literally have, for example, the Seagate desktop um, four terabyte drive. They have almost 5,200 of these. Um, they're not that old. They look like they're the newest purchase, and they have about, about a 3.8% failure rate. They talk about what happens when there's a failure, too, when they get into this. They say things like, well, you know, when we get a failure, we try to check the drives and put them back in after doing a, a fix of the volume. Um, and sometimes they decide to do that, sometimes they don't based on, I guess, you know, how long it would take to put it back in service and that kind of thing. So anyway, I'm not going to go into all detail, but if you were curious, you were shopping for a drive, um, for backup at least, this is a good site to go to. They don't mention much about high performance because they don't need high-speed performance. This is backup. Sure. So if you're looking for this for, like, what's the fastest drive, this isn't going to be it. But if you're looking to see what the most reliable drives are that they source, good information. Uh, I took a look. Um, they don't actually sell a kit, but... There's a, a vendor called Protocase okay. that, that'll do that for you. Very cool. All right, next stop, uh, Node.js 0.12. So I guess 0 0.12, um, 0 0.11 is out now, and um, if I remember correctly. And so that's what's been running uh, a lot of the Node uh, newer applications. 0 0.12 has been, I guess, beta or you know, in preview uh, for nine months now. They've been really working on it. They've got a couple of very interesting things coming out. Uh, so one of the things is there's this there's a thing called a corked mode. Um, so it says in corked mode, and this is on strongloop.com. Uh, strong blog is the, the the part of that site, and they talk about corked I/O. I've never heard of this, but when corked, data is written to the stream is queued up until the stream is uncorked again. This lets Node combine smaller writes into larger ones, resulting in fewer system calls and TCP round trips. So it's batching essentially of writes. Mm -hmm. um, so they're using that. They have updated the HTTP module so that it does that transparently when you're sending chunked requests or sending out response bodies. So as it's busy queuing it up, you know, it's going to get to a certain buffer size and write a bunch of writes out as one technical write, which is cool. Um, so you'll notice more, um, I guess, efficient I.O. writing output uh, in that example. TLS, SSL encryption has been reworked. Um, it is now a low-level library. It used to sit on top of uh, the, the net module as a transform stream from HTTP to SSL. And they say, you know, architecturally it looks good there, you know, looks good on a whiteboard, but to get the real performance out of it, they had to put it back down lower in a, in a level. So now they're saying basically that uh, not necessarily scientifically, but they take about 10% faster performance and they consume less memory overall. So that, that's not bad. Um, cryptographic processing is improved. Uh, they mentioned something in here, an amazing, um, amusing result of enabling AES-NI encryption is an industrial strength cipher, and they mentioned some long name, AES-128-GCM-SHA-256, EIEIO, is now faster than a non-encryption cipher. Hmm. That's kind of cool. 
Yeah. Um, they're improving garbage collector uh, and overall clustering performance. And there are other things as well. So uh, check that out if you're a Node person and you want to see what's coming in Node uh, 0.12. doesn't look like there's any breaking changes either. It looks like these are just low-level performance nothing, enhancements. Nothing deliberate. Nothing the, deliberate. We'll yeah. find out, you know. So anyway, so that's that on uh, Strong Loop. This is from uh, somebody named uh, Linda Leokas. L-I-U-K-A-S. She's Finnish, I believe, so uh, I'm sure I butchered that. Uh, i just read you a quick bio. It says, prior to writing this book, she co-founded Rails Girls, a global nonprofit teaching program, uh, teaching uh, organization, uh, teaching programming to tens of thousands of women in over 160 cities. She worked at Code Academy. And I love this. This says, uh, I am a Ruby Hero 2013 and the digital champion of Finland. Oh, cool. That is, I don't know what that really means, but that sounds awesome. It sounds awesome. Tracy um, would love this this particular post. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so y there's a lot of uh, momentum in the last few years about uh, getting kids into uh, coding and, and, and writing software, and uh, you know a lot of these efforts are really cool. But this one uh, comes along with an actual uh, story. So she has um, she has some illustrations. She has snippets of uh, kind of uh, what the story will will be. It's, oh, by the way, this is a Kickstarter. Project. Yes. Um, the, the link's in the show notes, but it's uh, if you're looking for the Kickstarter project, it's uh, Linda Liukas, L I U K S, slash hello dash Ruby is the project. She's backed by $188,000. Yeah. Wow. That's really good. She's going to be able to be funded to work on this. That's great. Yeah. 25 days to go as of today, uh, the recording time uh, in the campaign. Um, and yeah, this is pretty awesome. So uh, it's a story and a workbook. So uh, and actually, uh, it looks like a really good children's story that accompanied with with the workbook. Um, and I just think it's a really great approach. I think it's pretty unique and and interesting. I think it's fantastic that people are focusing on getting kids to code again. You know, really honestly, what I don't like is when my kids pick up an iPad and play a game. They're not learning anything. And and it's simple human interface design. They haven't learned how to program anything. They haven't learned anything about software. They've just learned how to use it. Hey, you know, I was playing Assassin's Creed last night, and I think I learned a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure those skills are coming in. Hold yeah. on, hold on. These kids today with their hair, their clothes, their lack of programming skills. There you we know, go. I was looking at the workbook, like, what does it actually have in it? And it looks like it's going to describe things like loops, parallelism, yeah. That's good. operators, variables. So I don't know if they're coding or if it's just describing these concepts in some sort of story form. I would love it's to read this to my girls and see what they think when they're done with it. You yeah, know? it's interesting. Yeah, well, there's a couple of videos uh, on there that are probably uh, really worth looking at. Yeah, here's one. Uh, so I know that Scrum, when I first came to Chariot, Scrum was all the rage, and uh, people were going to Scrum as their agile method of choice. Uh, and it seems like a lot of companies tried Scrum who probably should never have tried Scrum. Um, because they put the same hierarchies in place and attempted to put Scrum over top of those hierarchies and it didn't quite work. Um, not to say Scrum's bad. I don't think it is. Um, but it's like, it's like communism. Does it really exist? Does anybody actually <laughs> practice Scrum? You know? Scrum masters will have you believe it. Communism sounds good on paper, but it does, it does. there aren't any communists. <laughs> we just, just equated Scrum with communism. This is an awesome show. <laughs> well, that's all the time we have now. <laughs> be great if we just ended on that, like drop the mic and walk away, you know? <laughs> Okay, no. Um, so anyway, so this is a review of a company that decided, Stormpath, that uh, they would go down the road of, of Kanban, uh, which started as a manufacturing process at Toyota, I believe, Yeah. Uh, and then became genericized enough or, or, you know, changed enough that it could be done for, uh, you know, software and any other kind of process. So uh, he's saying basically there were a couple things that really kind of stopped them. Uh, and the biggest problem is that he says, Scrum assumes you're good at estimation. 
Now, have both of you been on Scrum-based projects? Definitely, yeah. Yeah, so, so times. Right, and so have you been in that world where you've got a completely, mm, let's say, made of cottage cheese level uh, thickness uh, technical challenge to figure out, and it's very hard to actually do a good estimation, and you're always off every time you come back to the next Scrum? Sure. Yeah. So yeah. that's what he's saying is the biggest cost. And they would get into these games, you know, and they would they would try these different types of estimation models, and they would start arguing over features, and they'd spend a lot of their planning time, like, figuring out, like, what is the right estimate for that? And then in the middle of it, they'd find out that it wouldn't fit. They'd figure out how to jam that into the, the estimate to make the actual scrum cycle fit. So there was all sorts of gaming around estimates, because that's the metric that you provide uh, that seems to, to drive a lot of things. Um, change management became part of the problem for them. Um, you know, they were saying basically, uh, once sprint planning is done, making changes to the sprint triggers more planning meetings. Uh, then you go back through this cycle over and over again. Uh, another one that he mentioned was morale, uh, where everyone was pushing towards that deadline, pushing towards that deadline. Well, so if you think about the terminology, it's exhausting just talking about it. Yeah. You're always in a sprint. Right. Who was talking somewhere where you're always in a sprint? Right. Right. So that's what they're talking about. So the idea would be to have a nice, decent amount of work. They have this little trough of, of work, and then they get going, and they get burned up, and they're really working on the deadline. They hit the wall, and then they're just relaxing again a little bit and kind of catching up. So they get this sawtooth pattern of productivity mm -hmm. or shark's tooth pattern of productivity. Um, you know, they were talking about maybe making shorter iterations, but then that would make more breaks in the cycle. You know, um, none of this is anything surprising to me, frankly. Right, right. You know, and I don't think, you know, I, I still think it's better than Waterfall. Right. If your feedback loop was one year iteration, then that's a problem. And yes. these guys, I guess we're talking about two or three week iterations. It's still better to find out at the end of the week what happened or the end of the, every two weeks. Exactly. So this article, um, he goes through, you know, how he worked with them uh, with Kanban and, uh, you know, what they felt about the process. They were talking about, you know, uh, several rules that they had in there. The main rule was that they wanted to make sure that the team uh, was happy about the way they were taking on work and able to get it completed. Um, they literally had a two-day transition. <laughs> um, let's see. Our team implemented and developed how we use Kanban at Stormpath, which gave them ownership over the process and success. The transition was very smooth. Two days worth of discussion and planning. Hey, that works. They do away with, um, they do away with estimates. That's the biggest thing, is forget estimating, forget estimation game. And now it's all about, here's a backlog of features. And in their world, the customer puts the features up, and the developers put the features into the board moving through the processes. Um, and the customers can vote, like, this one's more important than something else. And then they work to complete that. Um, then they talk about some things they do in terms of organization. So for example, they want to make sure that they uh, limit the number of things in any given collection of work. And then they try to push work through as opposed to putting a lot of things into flow. So trying to like not do too many things at a time. So just, I've never really worked on a Kanban project. I think, Joel, yours is Kanban-based, isn't it? Well, we're sort of like um, Scrumbon. So we just kind of <laughs> pick and pull, which actually really is Is that a delicious treat we can get <laughs> yeah, you can frosting get, on it? It's like a gluten-free Cinnabon. Oh, it's yeah. A, it's a Scrumbon. Yeah. No, um, you know, I think an agile practice is actually to not say that one size fits all, though I think right. people do kind of misinterpret that. It's really to, to take what you can find. But on Hadel, we did start out with a tool that um, promoted estimation, uh, which was a Pivotal Tracker. Right. And we did estimates, and it wasn't, like, painful. They weren't, like, the often right. They were sometimes right. It was okay to see velocity. I don't really think it added anything. So we, you know, for us, it was extra work that really didn't add anything. So our velocity this week was 14. So 
what. Right. Um, what so, does that really mean? Yeah. yeah. So what we ended up doing was, and and I mean, you can you can actually using these tools estimate to these mythical units. Okay, you just say is this bigger than that? You know, so is implementing this bigger than that or whatever. But anyway, so we did the estimation. We did just didn't really fa- find it to add a lot of value. So by simplifying, we you started using Trello as the tool. That's a pure Kanban board. Um, and so basically tasks just flow from left to right in a very simple fashion, you know, from basically to do to doing to done. And that has actually worked out really well. So we have um, you know, we just kind of, I don't know that we're following all the finer points of combine, who knows, but truthfully, if you get a process and it kind of works for just you, just use it. Yeah. Then I think, I think it's just simple. I mean, I really think when they start to identify why this worked, he said things like we cut out a meeting. Well, you know what? Um, that's a big deal. Yes. Recently. And again, we have a small team, but recently, um, Justin, who's our uh, lead developer had us use this tool, which has the worst name of any tool I've ever heard. Hit it. I done this. I'm not kidding you. I done this. So, but I done this basically every day. We just email. It emails you a question. And says, "What did you do?" And you email back what you did that day. That takes the place of a stand-up meeting. So it sounds totally stupid, but by implementing this, I done this. We've actually were able to save three meetings a week. Oh, I, I like that. And it was, it's insane. Like it's it's a very big. Pro- so I think it's really just relentlessly remove meetings from your process until you can poss- until you can be more efficient. Awesome. And Kanban helps that. Simple helps that. Right. Speaking, of, I'm, I'm going to jump over to that. Uh, you mentioned Trello. I'm going to do a quick plea for our listeners. If you want to go to Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise, I will tell you now we are going to sell out. In I'm betting we're going to sell out before. Definitely before March. That's my, my feeling on it. Um, just letting you know because it the tickets go quickly. And speaking of Trello, the creator of Trello, Good Joel Spolsky. Joel is going to be speaking. He's one of the keynoters at ETE this year. So if you haven't gotten your ticket and you want to go, get your ticket now because it will sell out and it will sell out quickly. And then you'll be left saying, I'd like to get in and it's very hard to get in once all the tickets are gone. You can get to that by phillyemergingtech.com. And that will take you right to the list of the speakers we have. Awesome list of speakers again this year. Uh, and uh, you'll see that it's if you're looking at anything with reactive programming, with infrastructure, cloud, uh, you know, programming languages like Clojure and Scala, uh, you name it, it's, it's all there. All the emerging technologies that, that are going to be things you're talking about all year long and come into your world the next year. Generally, that's the way it's been playing, right? I mean, it's been like that every year we've done it. Mm-hmm. So... Anyway, I figured I'd just sneak that plug in because I know the tickets will go. You got IDE in my web browser. I picked this one, too. This is kind of fun. We always talk about different HTML-based interfaces. Um, so it turns out there are a number of user interface editors for Bootstrap. You know, if you like playing around with Bootstrap for your prototypes and you're mm-hmm. in, you know, any kind of uh, user interfaces that don't need to look super magic. Uh, and so there are a number of these editors in here that basically are HTML-based editors of Bootstrap. Uh, one's called Bootstrap Magic. Uh, Boot Swatcher. I just think it's neat that they actually are able to do like live editing and modification of Bootstrap user interfaces directly from HTML5. We're getting to that point in terms of browser editing at this point. Yeah, Jetstrap is cool. We uh, we had looked at something like I talked about here a long time ago, um, a sister project of that, which works the same way for jQuery UI. Yeah, there's a lot of these. And, you know, sometimes I worry about these, you know, X number of things because they're really link bait. But it's just neat to know there are a fair number of these little editors to play around with to get you started with Bootstrap. Then, you know, save it, view source, and learn from it. So now, did you guys see this one? Google and Samsung sign a patent sharing agreement. Yeah, that's really interesting. Ten year and very wide ranging. I'm sorry. I, he- I hear, I hear, like, I listen to like tech 
podcast and, and, and I hear Pat and sharing and I you start turning off your brain. I just zone out. I just it's like a switch that turns my brain off. I think the goal here is to get a credible way of fighting Apple. Um, by federating a couple of companies together with a bunch of their own patents so they can sue each other into oblivion, maybe. I don't know. Um, but it's interesting because Samsung, of course, one of the biggest you know, um, Android providers uh, of hardware, uh, and Google, who has the Android operating system, uh, are basically sharing patents so that they can bundle up and work together um, and, and, I guess, work against the Apple world. I mean, they say it's defensive. <clears throat> it probably is the fight. It Apple, probably but is. Yeah. It is. A, I mean, it would be nice if more companies did that. And it's a long-term agreement. They don't. I don't think it said exactly what it covers, but supposedly it's a long-term, you know, widespread agreement to lay down their arms and just like let's all go innovate and stop this nonsense. So is the goal there so that Samsung and Google don't fight each other so they can correct? Yeah. So that they can <laughs> use their war chest. To yeah. Fight so like everybody else. doesn't have to fight like the rounded corners. You know, you can just like go build stuff and not have to worry about frivolous patents. MIT OpenCourseWare. Um, so MIT has a whole lot of courses online. Uh, they're doing the whole massively online course thing, which for better or for worse is where universities have been spending a lot of their online time lately. Um, what I look at from here is that if I want a copy of the SICPI book, the uh, Structure Interpretation of Computer Programs, I can click on one of their courses and get all of the content. So I can download a 1.2 meg zip with you know, 39 HTML files, the GIF files, and all sorts of output and all sorts of information with their course guidebook on it. Um, it's not just uh, that, though. You can get things like geometry and dynamic systems and learn Chinese and all that kind of stuff. So um, if you want some material to read through and you don't want to take a full course, you can take a look at the MIT OpenCourseWare.wordpress.com, uh, and they've got a OCW bookshelf link, which is on there somewhere. I'll post this right there. It's one of the menu items. Uh, and I'll post a link to that to the show notes. Coming down towards the end here, we have um, a RESTful micro framework in Go. Hey, speaking of, what's the best way to search for Go stuff online? Golang, G-O-L-A-N-G. As opposed to Go by itself, yes. which gets you everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, I, I just don't understand what they were thinking. <laughs> With the name, yeah. yeah. So um, did you, yeah, I guess, Eric, you talked about this in the hall before we started. Um, the guy who wrote something called Flask, um, which is a RESTful framework for Python, yep. wanted to play around with Go. And yep. he said, why don't you just implement Flask-ish technology uh, in Go? So he created something called Sleepy? Yeah, he created something called Sleepy, which is kind of a great name for it. Um, uh -huh. Because uh, there's so many of these uh, RESTful uh, micro frameworks for Go that it just kind of puts me to sleep when I think <laughs> about another one. Uh, it seems fine. I mean, you know, uh, it's it's... The, the interface is probably what you would expect it to be. You define the resources, um, you know, and you tell you know you can pass in the, what content type you want, and it'll it'll take that into account. Um, I, I don't know what to say about it. The only thing is, if the more of these keep coming out, somebody is going to write the exact same code as another one. It's pretty soon because there's a lot of these. And uh, what do you do with a micro framework? I don't know, Mike. What does that mean? It teeny. Mic micro I think it just means teeny. Well, so so the way Go is uh, is is interesting, and it's got a very nice um, Net HTTP library built in. So hmm. there's there's no reason to write a whole giant framework. Um, so it's very easy to plug in, you know, pieces. It's fairly composable. So um, I, I guess people find uh, easier ways to to create um, uh, RESTful frameworks. So you know, to handle the right verbs and and you know, expose your resources in the right way, and just kind of like. A DSL. I see it's 92 lines. It's pretty nice. 
Uh, well, that's yeah, and that's what Flask is famous for. So I'm not surprised it's so small. Uh-huh. Um, so Flask is kind of like if you're in the Ruby world, it's called like Sinatra, you know, on, on the Python side of things. So um, this is strictly for for RESTful APIs. So it's it's nice just seeing a, a, a small framework written in Go, so you get a feel for the scope of the the way the code is written, and you know, just what, what make I just want to I, I don't know I just want what makes you start to write this like what itch. Do, do you have that's not scratched already? Now, may, I'm sure there probably you know was at least a few, um, right? But uh, yeah, there's a lot of these out there. Yeah, it's, I mean, it sounds like it was more of an academic exercise for his perspective to learn how to use it. Yeah, and it's well done. Yeah. It's very well done. So it's yeah, you know, and it's funny. I look at the code. I don't find Go hard to understand visually. It's it not. Seems like it's pretty easy to read through. It is, especially if you're a Java programmer in the past or something like that. It's or C even. Um, none of that's terribly ra- you know rare to me. So. All right, cool. Hydra. 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 So Hydra. Just, <laughs> just a news Hydra is a project that has been newly open sourced. So is that the evil organization in G.I. Joe? Um is that what it is? That's a, there's Destro and then there's the it's Cobra. Cobra. Uh, Come on, man. Hydra is definitely in some like sci-fi movies, but this Hydra is a distributed data processing and storage system. So imagine you want to slurp some logs and do some cool stuff. Um, this used to be uh, this was originally developed at Add This, and so um, it's newly open sourced. It's a pretty uh, big, you know, uh, distributed data processing library that's worth checking out. So that's really just it. It's on GitHub, and it's built in Java, but I don't think that really matters to to necessarily to use it. And you can run it just standalone to like you know go attack some massive CSV files, or you can run it uh, in a cluster to you know to do some log processing kind of stuff. So always good to have uh, you know some new significant open source entries, and this is one of those where it's a commercially maintained product. I mean, I don't know if they sold this. I actually didn't research whether they just used it internally or not, but it sounded like they used it internally, and now this company's making it open, so great contribution. And it looks yeah. like they must do some communication with uh, AMQP, with RabbitMQ, uh, and it looks like they're using Zookeeper for the process management on the version they give you here. GitHub.com slash add this slash Hydra. Okay, well, that's it for the dev news for number 77. Uh, again, to get to us, you go to chariotsolutions.com slash devnews. That get, gets all this content. Um, briefly, uh, as we get done here, uh, I want to talk about two other podcasts we just released. If you go to chariotsolutions.com slash techcast. We recently had an interview uh, I did with Andrea Stefik. He is a, a, a doctoral professor uh, at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and he did a paper on uh, scientific research to analyze programming language syntaxes. Uh, presented at Java One, uh, you know his findings, and then the paper was just recently released. So we've been talking on and off in, uh, with him about doing a podcast and uh, recorded it. Some very interesting things he found. Uh, you know, he had people just to preview it. He had some people take some surveys. They would give them like a cheat sheet for some syntax. And they give them some problems to solve for different languages. It was Python and Ruby and Scala, I think, and Java, and then one of his own, uh, and something called Randomo, which is the greatest name language. He took his language, which is called Quorum, and he put it through a random keyword generator. And so he said, like, of all things, equal became exclamation point. (laughs) And he took a look and he said, you know, from that and also from doing some actual live coding exercises, he said, um, you know, he, he was able to determine statistically. Uh, which languages were easier to, for people to learn. Hmm. And it's very funny that, like, you know, <laughs> uh, Randomo and Ruby came up way up on top, and uh, Perl and Java were way down <laughs> below. 
So anyway, it's a fun podcast to listen to. There's all sorts of things that we discuss. That's TechCast82, and that's at chariotsolutions.com slash TechCast. So if you go to chariotsolutions.com slash podcast, uh, podcasts, uh, you can look for the Business of Technology podcast number four. We had the Guilt Group's uh, CTO, Michael Brizik, uh, and he talked about uh, how Guilt was founded uh, and you know how he, they built out using open source software, got to the point where they decided that, that uh, heavy-duty frameworks were not for them, went to microservices, so we talk a bit about what microservices are and how they help them get things done quickly and have team ownership of various pieces of software. Uh, and then also talk a little bit about how they're starting to contribute to open source. So that's an interesting one from a business perspective and just if you want to hear how a company has grown by using open source over time. And that's that. Cool. All right. So that's it. So we'll get out of here. So it is Monday, January 27th. That was DevNews77. I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Joel Compino. I'm Eric Snyder. And code, please. <laughs>